You are listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome everybody. Um, This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class and what that really means is that I'm not going to teach basic uh, meditation uh, techniques. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to teach the basics. Is it too cold? Um, we've been going through the Manual of Insight, the, um, the text by Mahasi Seda on Karnaka Samadhi, or Momentary Concentration Insight Practice, and we've been talking about developing mindfulness, and we've reached the point of talking about wise attention, or unwise attention. Um, Any awareness that arouses wholesomeness should be regarded as wise attention or right attitude. Here I elaborate on wise attention as it relates specifically to insight meditation. In the case of insight meditation, wise attention consists of noting or observing mental and physical phenomena at the moment that they take place in terms of their specific and general characteristics. When one empirical, when one's empirical knowledge of mental and physical phenomena matures, one will then um, inferentially realize the nature of phenomenon that one has never experienced by comparing them to those that one has. This is uh, also wise attention. Therefore, wise attention is attention that leads to the attainment of higher insight knowledges than path knowledge and fruition knowledge, as the commentaries say. Wise attention is the right method and the right way of attention. Wise attention is seeing what is impermanent as impermanent, seeing what is unsatisfactory as unsatisfactory, seeing what is not self as not self, and seeing what is unappealing as unappealing. So can you just sit in the present moment and watch phenomena roll by and and see the general and specific characteristics of it based on the three marks of existence, not self, impermanence, and unsatisfactoriness. Um, We might in the West call that metacognition or awareness of awareness, this attention in both the function of the arising of sensing activities or consciousness and then also awareness which observes consciousness. Uh, Do you know know the term metacognition or thinking about thinking or um, the um, in the, the development of, of human beings, it, depending on the luck of the draw, I guess, is one way to look at it. You might consider it as the cycle of rebirth or karma from a Buddhist pr- perspective, that the caregivers that you uh, had will have taught you this or not taught you this. So depending on, on how your early experiences were with your caregivers, 
They would have instructed you on, on metacognition. They would have instructed you on thinking about the thinking process. Um, they probably would not have broken it down in terms of the, the three uh, characteristics of existence, unless they were Buddhist and had that particular uh, philosophy. But um, you're mad now. Why are you mad? You're happy. What happened? Why are you happy? What is that process of thinking through things that some of us will have learned because our caregivers explained it to us and some of us will not have learned that because they didn't. Um, the less awareness of awareness you have, the more you tend to be identified with consciousness or the experience of the solidity, which would in some sense be a description of unwise attention Unwise attention is not the right method and not the right way of attention. Unwise attention is seeing what is impermanent as permanent, seeing what is unsatisfactory as satisfactory, seeing what is not self as self, and seeing what is unappealing as appealing. Um, so does everybody have a sense of awareness as different than what consciousness is? Or should I um, explain a little bit more of that? What do you think? I'm going to get some water and explain more of it. So one way I sometimes I talk about it is it is uh, function versus content. Um, Awareness is the, the, the knowingness of the mind, the, the capacity to know what the sensing experience is and to know what we've fixated the sensing experience into. It's, but it's very uh, neutral, it just knows. Consciousness is this, uh, the object that can be sensed which meets the capacity to sense and then this whole cascade of events happens where the consciousness of the sensing experience forms. We know whether the quality of the sensing experience is pleasant or unpleasant uh, or neutral. Then uh, the uh, perception of what the pattern of sensing experience is attached to it based on the, the database or the memory of previous sensing experiences. And then finally in this whole process, volition or the response to that is what happens. Um, something happens in the present moment, we recognize what it is, we remember the last time it happened and what we did and how, what the outcome of that was as part of the process of formulating how to respond to it. And that entire process is largely unconscious. We know it at the last moment when we're about to take the action. Is that making sense? So when it says in here, inferential insight is that we can know what that whole uh, process is, um, even if we haven't perceived it consciously, is the outcome in that final moment before we actually are engaged in the action. We can infer all of the steps backwards to what that first moment of uh, contact with the sensing object was. Make sense? If we don't watch that process or have an understanding that that's what's actually happening, 
then we may think that that thing that we form the sensing experience into, the perception of self and world, is actually an accurate representation of what's actually happening. And then what we will do is we'll take an action based on the understanding that that's what's, how it is and that this is an appropriate response. Have you ever made a response that didn't land properly because your perception was off about what was happening? How do you uh, develop a sensitivity to what that process is so that you can see how you form the experience of self and world in each moment uh, and in doing so begin to gauge the accuracy of, of this particular manifestation in the moment. Uh, that's this process of wise attention. We understand that there is no ongoing intrinsic solid self anywhere in this process by investigating. Uh, what we really do when we do a self-investigation is we look until we're convinced that there's nothing to find. That's the, the depth of the practice around that. Where in this uh, body-mind process is the self? a solid, unchanging, constant experience of self. <clears throat> the meta one of the metaphors that the Buddha used was the metaphor of the chariot. Do you know that? Um, <clears throat> if you have a chariot fully assembled in front of you, you can see the chariot. If you take the chariot apart and you lay down all of the pieces, the wheels, the axle, the platform, the rail, the yoke, um, all of that on the ground, where, in, where is the chariotness in the wheel, right? Where is the chariotness in the platform, in the rail? Um, you don't find it there. It's only when everything is assembled together that there's a, the, the capacity of chariot, or maybe we should say an automobile. You lay all of the pieces of the automobile on the ground, and where in any of the pieces is the automobile, but when you put them all together, you could drive down the street, right? <clears throat> Whereas the experience of self, if you investigate the body, is the body the, the experience of self? And then if you lose your arm, have you lost part of the sense of self? Or if you were uh, youthful at one time and now you're old, what happened to the the ongoing intrinsic quality of the, the self. Was it lost? Was it modified? If it was modified, how could it be ongoing and intrinsic? Is that making sense? Yes. Um, <clears throat> um, but even so, uh, when you look in the body, is the body the experience of self, or is the experience of self something different than that? Do you think on, on one occasion that you have an amazing body and on another occasion that you have a terrible body? Has that ever happened? Um, do you think on one occasion you're beautiful and on another occasion you're not beautiful? Um, what, is, what does that say about an intrinsic, ongoing, lasting experience of self? What it really suggests is that the experience of self is constantly changing. It's arising and passing like all other experiences. 
Um, so it isn't that there isn't an experience of self, there obviously is an experience of self. But it's that the experience of self is dependent on the conditions of the present moment and not the same experience of self. Um, one of the things about uh, confusing consciousness with awareness is that awareness is pretty neutral and pretty consistent and runs. It's just always there in the background. If you begin to learn to locate awareness, you can almost always find it. And if you remember, say, when you were a child, five or six years old, you can find in uh, memories of a five or six-year-old a, a memory, perhaps, of awareness, separate from the experience of self, separate from the experience of consciousness. And so we can sometimes confuse the experience of awareness with the experience of self. That's often a thing that happens. Or there's the arising of the sense of self, and then we jump into awareness, which acts as a bridge, because we don't want to experience the passing away of that moment of selfing. And then in the next moment of selfing, as it arises, we jump back into the experience of that. So we want to begin to pull apart the experience of awareness and, and know it distinctly from the experience of consciousness. Consciousness is the thing that we make out of the sensing experience, which awareness knows. <clears throat> Maybe you've heard the term non-dual. Non-dual is where awareness and consciousness are merged. But there's still that um, sense of awareness and consciousness. Just They're just not experienced as separate. In Vipassana, we tend to like to divide and separate things. So our thing is to separate them and see them independently. Is that making sense? And then the next one is the arising and passing. Everything arises and passes. All sensing experience arises and passes. If you, most of us with untrained minds tend to watch the arisings, and in failing to watch the passing away, we lose the awareness that everything arises and passes, and we just experience it as ongoing because we're just paying attention to the arisings. And so we begin a process of watching the arising and passing away so that we can notice in any sense gate that we turn to that all experience arises and passes, nothing lasts. Um, in unsatisfactoriness, uh, we understand that even this human life that we're currently in will arise and pass, that we'll, we'll age, we'll get sick, we'll die, and that that is everybody's uh, condition. Do you know the story of the Buddha and the mustard seed? A woman's uh, baby died and she was carrying the baby everywhere asking uh, people to revive it, so medicine men and religious leaders. And um, she came to the Buddha and said that she heard that he was uh, omnipotent and omnipresent and that surely he could bring her baby back to life. And he said that he would be happy to do it if she could bring to him one mustard seed from a family who had never experienced death. Um, 
mustard seeds in India are pretty common. So it was like asking for the most common thing you can ask for. And so off she went, going from house to house to house to find uh, um, a, a single mustard seed from the family who had never experienced death, and she was unable to find that, and, and that brought to her the insight of the impermanent nature of, of even the human mind. I think that we all, in some sense, know that, right? We know that there's death. But it's very hard to imagine it happening to us. <laughs> um, some of us have not begun to age, but the others of us have, so we know aging as well. <laughs> Sickness, we've all probably had sickness of some kind or another. We know what that's like. <clears throat> um, the second level of unsatisfactoriness is uh, getting what you want and losing it. The second uh, aspect of that is not getting what you want. And the third aspect of that is having to put up with things that you don't want. So that's part of unsatisfactoriness. And the last aspect of that is that um, there's a subtle, ongoing irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything. It's a kind of double-edged sword. Nothing is the way you want it, and you're not actually in charge of anything. <laughs> control. How, many, how much uh, energy do you put into having control of things? Um, or the appearance of the control of things. And so what we're talking about here um, in terms of wise attention is that in each moment of experiencing the, the arising and passing of, of uh, even, for instance, time is, a, is a, an experience of consciousness, but it isn't a quality in awareness. Awareness is timeless. Consciousness has the... the uh, the aspects of, or the experience of time in it. Um, it's w one of the reasons that timelessness aspect that uh, you can remember your childhood and, and, and have the experience that you're still the same person as you were then. Even though you're, you're not even the same person that you were when you came in here and, and I started to talk because the whole physical process has changed and is different. Um, cells died, cells were born, all of that. So uh, from a conceptual point of view, you want to understand that this is how it is. And then you want to uh, see that that's the experience that you're having and that it's not another experience than that. Is that making sense? Do you have a sense as you watch all of this unfold that, uh, that uh, there's an experience of selfing, but it's not intrinsic, not ongoing, there is no constant sense of self, that everything arises and passes, that everything is subject to the conditions of unsatisfactoriness, and that if you can uh, choose, in some sense, to place your attention in awareness and watch this flow without identifying, and then not suffering, or you can uh, 
get caught up in the, the content of consciousness and identify, that would be unwise attention, and suffer accordingly to that. So really when we talk about this, the, the long goal of, of this kind of meditation practice is uh, enlightenment or liberation. And really what that, uh, one way to describe that is that your orientation switches out of identification with consciousness into awareness. It isn't, <clears throat> and I would say that really it's a coming and going uh, from fixating and non-fixating, that you come into um, a fixated sense of self so that you can function in relationship to other people. But then when you don't need that solidity, you drop out into awareness. You get stuck in a, a moment of consciousness and it's painful. You can step out into pure awareness where there's no time and no suffering. Um, and so that really uh, a deeply enlightened person can move effortlessly between uh, consciousness and awareness or actually uh, exist in a state where awareness and consciousness are, are merged together. But in the beginning uh, of this, the practice, in order to be able to see it clearly, it's sometimes useful to separate them. This is awareness. This is consciousness. Uh, does that make sense? Sometimes describing it, I don't experience your reac reaction as one of being helped by this. <laughs> What's the example of the non-dual practice that? I don't, I'm not empowered to teach any non-dual, so I, I don't really teach any of it. I know that you could come and sit with Dan Brown, my teacher, and he could teach you. So, so we, so me going, oh, I don't really have any experience with that. Makes sense. Right. So also understand that the way each of the traditions teach, they teach around experiencing particular insights. And we, we talk about a multifaceted jewel of the Dharma, and depending on which facet you look through, it looks differently. Um, we're in uh, Theravada Buddhism, which is the lesser vehicle, and the, the Zen and um, uh, Tibetan people are uh, Mahayana, and there's a, a, a friction between the, the different styles of teaching. Um, I always like to point out that the Buddha used the Theravada method to get enlightened. <laughs> um, Dan Brown was saying, why would you use old technology when you could use new technology? And I was thinking, well, if you wanted to walk across the street, would you fly in a rocket to the moon and then land on the other side of the street? <laughs> would you beam yourself over and just walk? Right. Anyway, never mind. So, <clears throat> I think what's useful is to find a practice and a, a teacher that is some somebody that's relatable to you and relatable to your actual conditioning. Um, 
most of uh, the Tibetan teachers I've experienced have been too unkind for me. And so I've really been looking for a relationship with a teacher that was useful to me and that I felt safe to explore with. And that may be, at least from my perspective, more important than uh, tradition. Um, but, uh, you know, lineage, lineage, teach, lineage teachings, people get very identified with their, their lineage. So the idea then is in each moment of consciousness is this metacognitive aspect alive and are you paying attention to the, the ultimate reality and the conceptual reality? That is to say, do you know what you're sensing and do you know what you've made the sensing experience into? And do you know that, the, that you can make the sensing experience into almost anything so that that tends to be unreliable. And the sensing experience, if you can touch into it, is, is just what's the data that's coming in and that that can be reliable. And so in the Vipassana way, you're constantly touching into the sensing experience and then seeing what you've made it into and touching into the sensing experience and seeing what you've made it into uh, with these broad concepts of there is no experience of solid self, so that the experience of self that I'm having in the moment doesn't need to be defended. What it needs to be is observed on what conditions are present that that moment of self-experience would arise. So you're in awareness knowing that I'm having a self I'm having big angry self arise in the moment, but I don't need to defend or take action to preserve big angry self. You know what I'm talking about? Ever have big angry self arise in a moment? <laughs> what happens if you just let big angry self arise and pass away and then examine what the conditions are that cause that perception to arise so that you can be skillful in your uh, action in response to the moment? Nothing lasts, everything arises and passes. Do you ever have the perception that this is permanent and I'll never get out of it? That would be a, a, an unwise attention, a misunderstanding. Nothing lasts forever. Everything arises and passes. Um, and then, uh, at what level of unsatisfactoriness? Um, Friday is leg day on the gym, so I spend the whole weekend crippled walking around in stiff as a board. Um, but that's, you know, the body. The body is that third aspect of unsatisfactoriness. We live in bodies. It's such, such an interesting thing. We're born into these bodies that aren't even fully grown, and then we have to train them to do all sorts of things to function at all. And all the while that we're training them, they won't last. I mean, it's just an amazing sort of thing, this uh, human existence, right? All along suffering uh, because of it. So um, one of the, the main reasons, I think, really of shifting out of um, consciousness as the basis of operations into awareness is that the degree that you suffer is minimal in awareness. 
whereas it can be very intense in, in consciousness. So. Okay. So how did that go? There's nothing left. <laughs> Even with the counting? No. Chair. Yeah. Your posture seemed pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it was hard tonight. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best thing about it, hitting yourself in the head with a hammer when you stop. <laughs> So this is deepening your practice. Um, I'm always going to be advocating ways to deepen your practice because of that. So we have a retreat coming up in December. It's a Metta Vipassana retreat. Uh, on a Metta Vipassana retreat, the first four days of the retreat will be all Metta, and the second five days will be all Vipassana. Um, the main advantage of that is that you concentrate the mind using Metta, and uh, you make uh, the relationship uh, to the mind, uh, to you, uh, kind. And then when you then begin to explore your conditioning through the Vipassana practice, it tends to be much uh, easier to do and less, uh, um, there's less 
uh, critical self-talk that arises as a result of that. So um, I think that uh, you should try and go on at least one residential retreat a year, and, and uh, so this one is a good one to go to. There's a flyer out there for that. Uh, useful to have a daily practice. If you don't have a daily practice, we do uh, a guided meditation every morning at 7.30, Monday through Saturday, uh, which is a conference call. There's a flyer out there for that with that information on it. Um, I think it gives you a free month of it that we do ask uh, for a donation for that. Um, the, um, but, you know, getting into the habit of a daily practice, uh, it's also recorded and put into a Dropbox so that if you want to use the recording at any time uh, during the day, you can do that. Um, I have some intensives coming up in March. We have a Meaningful Life Level 1 Intensive, which is an informational class and a meditation instruction class. So uh, you get the vocabulary of working with attachment. I like to talk about uh, attachment theory, which is John Bowlby's uh, theory, which is a Western psychological idea. But it really informs the way that we form the experience of self and the experience of world. And uh, based on the kind of conditioning you had in childhood, we tend to get into these patterns of relationship to self and world. And uh, if you can begin to recognize them, you can begin to shift your uh, responses in relational cues to a more secure way of being in relationship to yourself and also to the world. So the level one training is there uh, um, for people who are, are new to the, that way of practicing. We're also going to do a level two training this uh, March, which is for people that have had uh, taken one of the intensives before or uh, been in treatment and done the MIAP classes there. In level two training, you work with a mentor so that the, the uh, meditation practice deepens. There's a lot of dyad work so that the the uh, sensitivity to the interaction between uh, minds and people is, is explored. And then there's also a uh, uh, idealized parent figure protocol as part of that, where you actually do a guided meditation, which is in, intended to update the working model of self and the working model of world so that you don't continue to rely on what actually happened to you in childhood. You can install a secure way of viewing yourself and also the world um, and bypass really um, working through any of the uh, any trauma that you might have had as a as a child the, um, the conventional way of working with this uh, in trauma therapy is to bring to mind the the um, traumatic experiences and then attempt to process them emotionally in the IPF protocol, there's no need to do that because you go straight into just updating the working model. So it's, it's actually, uh, I think, probably more efficient in a way of updating that. Uh, we're also going to offer uh, meditation interventions for the addiction process uh, level one intensive. Uh, so all of the, those flyers are out there by the table. Um, the, these classes uh, are offered on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pi word for generosity. 
Um, so we ask you to contribute uh, support for the classes so that, that we can put them on. The suggested down here is $20, so we have a bowl out there for cash, and I can also take a credit card if you'd rather, or a debit card. Um, because it's a generosity practice, we want you to give it a level of generosity that's commiserate with your resources. If $20 isn't uh, that much to you, give more. If $20 is a good level, give that. A, if it's too much, give uh, less. But each time you come, do consider uh, contributing something because it is a, a practice which is intended to open uh, your heart. Um, and, and then we'll... I am going um, to Toledo to Retreat in New York, so I'll be away uh, for the next two Mondays, but then back after that, and we'll send you an email announcement of that. If you're not on our email list, there's also a sign-up sheet for the email list out there, so you can get the emails uh, uh, telling you when and when we're not having classes. Thank you. Thank you.